Welcome to the December 15th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick overview of what's new in the journal. I know how busy our listeners are, so let's get right to the new articles, beginning with those published online on December 8th. Clinical trials have ruled out the role of hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19, but some believe that the drug may have a role in preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection in people after exposure to someone with known infection. In a study published online on December 8th, researchers from University of Washington, New York University, and University of Maryland randomized 671 households in which there was a close contact with COVID-19 to answer the question of hydroxychloroquine's effectiveness in preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection. 337 households were given 400 milligrams of hydroxychloroquine daily for three days, followed by 200 milligrams for the next 11 days. 334 control households were given 500 milligrams of vitamin C for three days, followed by 250 milligrams for the following 11 days. The researchers found that the risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection within the households was high, but there was no statistically significant difference in the development of infection between the hydroxychloroquine and the control group. They conclude that hydroxychloroquine should not be prescribed to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection after exposure to a close contact with infection. COVID-19 can persist in persons and result in prolonged illness, sometimes referred to as long COVID, and this is the topic of the next article. Researchers from Geneva University report a study of COVID-19 symptom evolution and persistence in an outpatient setting from day 1 through day 30 to 45 following diagnosis. They found that patients with COVID-19 develop an array of symptoms that evolve over time. Fatigue, dyspnea, and loss of the sense of taste and smell were the main persisting symptoms. Knowledge is limited about the patterns of viral persistence and host response in patients with COVID-19. In the next article, researchers from Wuhan, China, report a large retrospective study that describes patterns of viral polymerase chain reaction positivity and evaluate correlations with seroconversion and disease severity. They found the rate of viral PCR positivity peaked within the initial few days of infection. Seroconversion rates peaked within four to five weeks. Dynamic laboratory index changes corresponded well to clinical symptoms, the recovery process, and disease severity. The researchers note that these data may be helpful in informing the development of preventive and treatment strategies that consider viral kinetics, clinical manifestations, and laboratory testing. Further work is urgently needed to improve our understanding of the potential effects of the virus, host innate and adaptive immune responses, and their interactions during the acute and convalescent phases of COVID-19. Although we are rapidly learning more about COVID-19, we still know little about why some infected persons have severe disease and others are asymptomatic or only have mild illness. In a case report, authors from Italy described male identical twins who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. Neither twin had a history of chronic disease or cardiovascular risk factors. They lived at the same address and worked at the same location. The medical team provided care to both brothers during the first two weeks of their hospital stays. Despite having similar presentations and early treatment, twin one was discharged without complications and recovered uneventfully, while twin two required more care and had four days of invasive ventilation. 
The authors suggest that differences in the virus, such as differences in the affecting dose or viruses with different mutations, may explain differences in illness severity rather than differences in the persons who are infected. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected the hospital experience for patients, visitors, and staff. Researchers from McMaster University sought to understand clinician perspectives on adaptations to end-of-life care for dying patients and their families during the pandemic. They conducted semi-structured interviews with clinicians who identified many barriers to optimal end-of-life care due to infection control practices that mandated visiting restrictions. The researchers summarized the ways that these clinicians found to work around these barriers to express humanity, seek each patient's story, ensure dignity-conserving care, adopt new roles, and catalyze connections. While the study was conducted at one institution in Canada, the report reflects experience that appear to be occurring in hospitals around the globe. Whether or not vitamin D supplementation has a role in preventing falls in the elderly has been a topic of much debate. Some studies have suggested that vitamin D supplements might reduce the risk for falls in older adults. However, evidence has been inconsistent and advocates of supplementation argue that this inconsistency might be due to differences in dosage or the population studied. A large pragmatic randomized trial attempted to settle this controversy by studying vitamin D supplementation in a group of older persons at high risk for falls. Annals published the trial on December 8th. Researchers from Johns Hopkins University compared four doses of vitamin D3 to determine whether vitamin D supplementation reduces the risk for falls, and if so, at what dosage. The researchers randomly assigned 514 participants aged 70 years and older with elevated fall risk and low vitamin D blood levels to receive 200, which was a control group, 1,000, 2,000, or 4,000 international units of vitamin D3 per day. During the dose-finding phase, the best non-control dose for preventing falls was selected. In the subsequent confirmatory phase, participants previously assigned to receive non-control doses received the best dose, and 174 new participants were randomly assigned to receive 200 international units per day or the best dose. The researchers found that vitamin D supplementation at doses of 1,000 international units per day or higher did not prevent falls compared with 200 international units per day. No analysis found a benefit of higher-dose vitamin D supplements, and some analyses suggested that the higher doses of vitamin D supplementation increased the risks of serious falls and hospitalization. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Bruce Trone writes, quote, The remaining question is, how can we prevent falls? The answer almost certainly will entail multi-component approaches that include medication management, exercise, physical therapy, disease management, vision care, home safety modifications, and possibly even vitamin D supplementation for certain patients, end quote. Next is a prospective cohort study that found that peripheral neuropathy may be an unrecognized independent risk factor for death. Researchers from Johns Hopkins studied over 7,000 adults aged 40 or older who had standardized monofilament testing for peripheral neuropathy to assess association with of peripheral neuropathy and all-cause and cardiovascular mortality. They found that the prevalence of peripheral neuropathy was 27% in those with diabetes and 11.6% in those without diabetes. The condition was associated with both all-cause and cardiovascular mortality in adults with and without diabetes, and these associations persisted even after adjustment for prevalent cardiovascular disease and other risk factors. 
According to the researchers, these findings suggest that decreased sensation in the foot may be an important risk factor for death in the general population. On December 8th, we also published a commentary on the role of academic health centers in addressing structural racism. The authors explain why they believe that the economic relationship between hospitals and the surrounding communities must be improved. Healthcare organizations must invest some of their profits in community health if they truly want to commit to reducing race-based health disparities. In a comprehensive review of SEER data published online on December 15th, researchers analyzed histologic colorectal cancer subtypes independently and found that some lesions categorized as colorectal cancer may be potentially lower-risk tumors. Researchers from Tulane University Medical Center reviewed data from 2000 to 2016 for 119 624 patients with colorectal cancer to assess early-onset colorectal cancer incident rates and changes in incident rates over time stratified by histologic subtype, primarily adenocarcinoma or carcinoid tumors. Adenocarcinoma is key to analyze because it is a target for prevention through screening programs and risk factor stratification. The researchers found that 4 to 20% of colorectal cancers were carcinoid tumors as opposed to adenocarcinoma, a proportion that had increased over time. In the rectum, the colonic segment with the largest reported increase in early onset colorectal carcinoma, up to 34% of lesions were carcinoid tumors rather than adenocarcinoma in the most contemporary period. This is significant because carcinoid tumors have a distinct pathogenesis from adenocarcinomas. According to the researchers, these findings are relevant as they underscore the importance of assessing histologic subtype independently. If all colorectal cancers are grouped together without stratifying by histologic subtype, it may not be possible to get an accurate account of adenocarcinomas in young patients. Given the focus on early onset colorectal cancer, it is critical to focus specifically on adenocarcinomas. They also show that although carcinoids are in fact increasing at a faster rate than adenocarcinomas, Adenocarcinomas are steadily increasing in almost all early onset groups, including 40 to 49-year-olds, which has implications for changing average risk screening to age 45. Furthermore, adenocarcinomas still make up the overwhelming majority of colorectal cancers in younger patients. The researchers note that modeling studies on which the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force screening recommendations are based excluded carcinoid tumors from their analysis. Yet the recently released draft guidelines concluded that beginning screening at age 45 provided a better balance of benefit to harm than beginning at age 50. For those in their 20s and 30s, increasing adenocarcinoma rates also underscore the importance of risk stratifying patients by family history and taking symptoms, such as rectal bleeding, seriously. The authors of an editorial from the University of Oslo, Oslo University Hospital, and Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia point out that the medical community, patient organizations, and policymakers have been concerned about a worrisome increase in colorectal cancer in young adults in recent years. For that reason, the American Cancer Society recommended people to start screening at younger ages. This affects 22 million Americans who are now recommended for screening. The authors say this new research is important because it shows that carcinoids contribute to some of the previously reported increase in cancer. December 15th also brings the latest issue of ACB Journal Club and the latest Annals Consult Guides and Annals for Hospitalists. The Consult Guides discuss strategies for evaluating patients with heart failure during telemedicine encounters. In addition to key points from recent Annals articles, particular relevance to hospital medicine, 
Annals for Hospitals features a commentary on making sense of the evolving data on remdesivir in the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID-19. That brings us to the end of the final 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I hope that all of our listeners have a happy and healthy winter holiday season, despite the challenging times that we are all living through. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.